You know, back when we lived in small villages and social mobility was like maybe 10 miles, the way that you got a job was based on your reputation, right? Somebody would be like, hey, I need somebody to herd my sheep. Can Billy do it? And they'd be like, no, Billy's lazy. You don't want him herding your sheep. Or we need somebody to run the inn. Can Susie do it? Yeah, Susie basically raised her eight brothers and sisters. She can for sure run an inn. But now that there are so many people in the world and we tend to move from city to city, from country to country, from province to province, there's something else that we use to get our foot in the door when it comes to occupation, and that is the resume. 12-point font, perfectly formatted, laying out all of your experience with action verbs, Your resume is the golden ticket to somebody paying attention to you, and it better be pretty good because the average hirer only spends about six seconds reading a resume. And if you've got a bad one, you're in trouble. And let me tell you, there are bad ones out there. For example, there's a young woman who was applying to be a server somewhere, and she had been a server before. She described part of her experience serving, saying that she was responsible for severing guests to create memorable moments and long-lasting loyalty. Those poor people. <laughs> I'm sure it was very memorable, though. Or somebody who was applying to teach languages at a university, they, you know, the top of their resume, they wrote that they're a teaching assistant with two-plus years of experience supporting young learners in a multilingual setting. Language genius with a level two teaching assistant certificate. Ixbrecht Deutsch, hablo espanol, fluidas, my pronunciation's bad. Svenska prata, oxa jatabra, that means also speaks Swedish well. How do you say I'm still looking for a job to match my ego in German? <laughs> a resume is supposed to be a realistic portrayal of your experience. It's supposed to show how you've been educated, what some of your core experiences are, where you've come up, what you think your vocation is. And experience is what we're focusing on at the end of our SHAPE series. Because each of us in this room has a God-given resume. As much as we believe, as Psalm 139 was read for us today so beautifully, God shaped us and formed us, our hearts, our desires, our personalities, our gifts in the womb, God, also for those who love him, has been working all things together by providence through our lives. We have a unique angle on the world that equips us for certain callings. And if you want to see a God-given resume in action, you don't have to look much further than a battleground in Judea when the Israelites were fighting the Philistines. And the Philistines sent out a champion named Goliath. And one young shepherd boy stood up and when all of Israel backed down said, I will go forward and I will fight him. We catch the story in 1 Samuel 17 starting at verse 32. David said to Saul, the king of Israel, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, the giant Goliath who is taunting Israel. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. 
You're familiar with the rest of the story, sling, head, a little bit of severing, right? David wins. But the question for today is, what made David stand up when other people backed down? He was experienced. And each of us in this room, if we've been walking with God, have some core experiences as well. And those things are the things that make us stand up to fight giants when others shrink back. So this morning, as we explore experience and how it helps us find our calling, we're going to look at those good things, we're going to look at those bad things, and finally, we're going to look at our limitations. So as we've been saying throughout this series, um, we are called to participate with God in his rescue plan for creation. And part of that is discovering our unique shape. Our spiritual gifts, yes, they help us find our calling, the ways that we're supernaturally empowered to do the work of God. Our heart's desires, our passions, they can lead us to where God would have us. Our natural abilities, our talents can lead us there. Our personality, how we are conditioned to default uh, to defaultly operate in the world, and we can work with or against that as we look for our calling. But often, for most people, when you sit and you talk to them, if they've found where they feel they fit, their experience, their history, is one of the key ways that they find their calling. And I think we see that with David. So when David stands up and says, I'm willing to fight, the king of Israel basically comments on his experience. He says, you're just a punk kid, And this guy has been trained from his youth to be a warrior. What makes you think you've got the right to stand up and do this? Well, David talks about some pretty amazing abilities that he's got. He has killed a bear with what seems to be his bare hands. My friend Larry has biked around the Yukon. And he tells a story of one time biking, and out of a ditch rose the head of a grizzly bear. If you have ever seen a grizzly bear, their paws are about as big as my face. My friend was actually armed for this occasion. He had a 38 revolver in his saddlebag, and he was still shaking in his boots. So what David has done, this is a a pretty big feat, okay? This is a big deal. But I don't think it's David's natural abilities that got Saul thinking that he might let this kid go forward. Because David says, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. It's not just his natural ability. It has to do with what David knows about God. Um, Eugene Peterson says that God was the reality with which David had to deal. Giants didn't figure largely in David's understanding of how the world worked. See, David elevates the battle. He says that this Philistine, this Philistine, is standing up against the armies of the Lord of heaven. I know the way this fight will go, Because I've been in situations where I've seen the Lord fight for me. Now, if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, we know and we read that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose and for those who love him. That means that probably in your history, you have some core experiences of how God has worked in the world that have you knowing things at a deeper level than other people. Right? Uh, We're going to see in a minute Probably any of the slingers could have got up out of Israel's army and did what David did. But the reason they didn't is because they did not experience of God what David had experienced. David knew what it was like to face his fears with the Lord of Heaven's armies behind him. And you've probably got those places in your life where you know things. You know things about God and how the world works based on what you've been through. 
You know, um, it doesn't always have to sound supernatural either. Think of like, if I was to come into this room and say, hey, who wants to be a social worker in rural communities for indigenous people? In this room, probably many of us would say, you know what, I've actually got the spiritual gifts for that. I might even have the desire to do that. I think that would be a really worthy cause to join into. You might have the natural abilities, right? Just the like reading micro expressions and stuff that social work takes. You might have the personality where that won't burn you out. But probably a lot of you that have all of those qualities haven't thought of that work. Why? Because of your experience. Whereas my friends who do it, it was the first thing on their mind because they were raised in the foster care system. They knew how good or bad it could be. They, they grew up on reserves. They, they, they are aware of things that other people aren't aware of, and they're aware of a need as well, not just the ability of God to speak in those situations. So our experience, the way it can inform our calling, if you haven't paid attention to your life, it might be good to just sit down with a journal, to sit down and kind of write your life story and look for those God moments. Look for those places where God has done something incredible in your life or done something that feels like it's memorable to you. And you may notice as you look at those things, you'll start to see some themes. Maybe it's the faithfulness of God. Maybe it's the faithfulness of God to provide when you felt like you didn't have enough. Maybe, it's, maybe it is God fighting your battles for you. Those places will have you standing up, walking up to the battle line where other people shrink away. Those things can be your resume for killing a giant. Now, a note on real resumes for a brief second, particularly for those of you that are younger in the room. Certain callings, certain vocations, whether in ministry or elsewhere, in vocational ministry like church ministry or in ministry out in the world, they're going to require that you also have a real resume. They're going to also require that you like have some work experience and an education and all that kind of thing. Particularly, you'll find that the higher risk that uh, occupation is or that vocation is, the more that that's going to be necessary. And we read in Scripture in Luke 2 that even Jesus had to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and humanity. He had to grow in wisdom. Maybe you need to grow in wisdom, like go get some education, right? Go learn some things. You don't want engineers building bridges that haven't been to engineering school. Maybe you need to grow in stature, right? Uh, this is literally in Greek, lifespan, right? I think you could take it to mean character as well. Character is one of those things that kind of needs some life under it to grow. And there's a lot of positions, a lot of callings that require a high degree of character. You may look out and say, you know what? I've got the gifts, I've got the abilities, but you know what? I don't know if my character can match it, right? So you just need to live a little. Or maybe growing in favor, like Getting references, going and doing things, doing some volunteer work, that's going to be important because, again, the higher risk the calling, the more people want to see that you've been trustworthy in other areas. And if you are considering a vocation in ministry out of this series, no matter your age or stage, um, we have an internship here, an intro to ministry internship. Uh, ben has actually been through it. I know there's a bunch of other people who have been through it. It's a really great time. Dave runs it. Um, if you're considering that, that's a great option for you. But... Just a little bit about real resumes. One of the other things that we have to consider when we're considering our experience is our pain, the difficult experiences of our lives. And when it comes to those things, I think you've kind of got two options. Option one is to live out of your hidden wounds. It seems like the more you hide your woundedness, the more it takes over your life and affects you. Or, alternatively, you can wear the scars, 
which means you can be aware of the ways in which you're wounded. You can seek the healing you need, and your woundedness can become a place of healing for others. So living out of our hidden wounds, what does that look like? Well, at the risk of over-psychoanalyzing a Bible character, David has got some pretty interesting points in his story. See, David is the son of Jesse, and it seems like Jesse's maybe a pretty typical farming dad. David's a little bit of a runt. He's a little sensitive. He writes all that poetry and stuff. So maybe Jesse sends him out to the harder fields to do the shepherding, right? Sends him out to bear country to toughen him up a little bit. And we know that later, when the prophet Samuel comes looking for the next king of Israel, Jesse's got many sons, but he doesn't invite David to the party. Kind of like, who needs to see him anyways? Leaves him out in the field. Seems like David might have been a little bit neglected. And part of David's story is definitely that he's learned that nobody's going to give him what he needs or wants, so he's got to take it. He's not always the hero of the story. And you see this later in David's story. His big problem is David neglects his sons. If you read in 2 Samuel 13, you'll find kind of the hardest point in David's life comes when one of David's sons abuses one of his daughters. And then one of David's other sons, because David knows about this and does nothing about it, one of David's other sons murders that abuser and then tries to usurp the kingdom from David. So the very pain that David might have experienced becomes the thing he perpetuates in his own life. That's living out of your hidden wounds. That's what happens when we don't face our brokenness and our woundedness. We often end up becoming the very thing that hurt us. It's not just in the Bible, right? We see examples in the real world all the time. There's this really wonderful documentary on trauma and how it affects our lives. Um, There's 235 prisoners that are stood in a circle around this, like, petite woman And what this woman does is she asks questions from the ACE test, so adverse childhood experiences. She asks questions about them. She says, you know, if before the age of 18, an adult in your home regularly raised their voice, yelled at you, or insulted you, step inside the circle. 98% of the men step inside the circle. She says, if in your home you were regularly pushed and had your physical boundaries transgressed in an aggressive way, step inside the circle. Same 98% step inside. If, when you were a child, you were hit so hard in such a way that it left marks on your body, step inside the circle. At the end of this, she goes through about 20 questions. At the end of this, there's only about four or five men on the outside of the circle. As one doctor has said, in prison, we have the most traumatized population in the world. Over half of the men, in like a 2012 study, so a long time ago, and I bet you it's far higher than that, over half of the men in prison have been physically abused in the home. Over half. And that's just physical abuse. Which does bring up part of dealing with our pains, and I think psychologists are right on this, and I know it sounds a little too much like a certain Austrian, is actually also dealing with the ways that we've been hurt as kids, particularly. There's something about how things happen to us as children that really affects us for the rest of our lives. And there's something about those things that happen to us as children too that make us want to hide them a little bit more sometimes than the stuff that happens to us as adults. And even if you grew up in a home that was really healthy and that everybody tried their best, there's still some stuff from your upbringing you probably have to deal with. 
There's a Christian thinker and psychologist named David Brenner who writes this, that powerful conditioning in our childhood encourages us to acknowledge only the most acceptable parts of ourself. And parts of self that are not given a place at the family table become stronger, not weaker. Operating out of sight and beyond awareness, they have increasing influence on our behavior. Basically, those things that you weren't allowed to do or be, like if you were a really big feeler in a home that there wasn't a lot of feelings, those things end up kind of spilling over into the other areas of your life, just asking for the airtime. And again, this isn't to blame parents or families or anything, okay? This happens to all of us because we're born as creatures with infinite need into finite and broken situations, And it's not just childhood stuff, it's at any stage of life. But your pains, your hurts, if you hide them and if you don't face them, they tend to take over your life. There's a a pastor named Frederick Buechner, who's one of my all-time favorite preachers. And he tells this story, He, he he grew up in the Depression, and his father was an alcoholic. And he tells this story at a retreat one time of how his mom came home, his dad was drunk, and she stole the keys from his dad and gave them to Fred, who was 10 years old, and said, you need to hide these from your dad. So he goes to his bedroom, covers himself with the blankets, and hides the keys under the pillow and falls asleep to his father begging for the car keys. He tells that story, and then after he tells that story, somebody comes up to him and says to him, Fred, you've had a lot of pain in your life, but you've been a good steward of it. Speakner kind of steps back and says, I don't... <laughs> no, I don't want to be a steward of my pain. Like, I don't want to take responsibility for that stuff. I want to forget it. He weaves it into this beautiful sermon. There's a link to it in your notes where he compares it to the parable of the talents. And he says, that man, we've been talking about this parable a fair bit, that man who buries his talent is like the one who buries their pain. They bury a part of their humanity. They bury a part of their experience. And in neglecting and hiding from it, they end up suffering from it more. Stewardship, right, you know, taking care of all those parts of us means often appropriately, hopefully in good context, in particular if you've been truly traumatized with a professional, digging those things up, looking at them, paying attention to them. You know, we want to hide our scars often, but I think the gospel actually encourages us to wear them. We don't talk about this enough, but one of the weird things about Jesus and his resurrection is that Jesus is supposed to be the embodiment of human perfection when he's resurrected. He is the glorious body that we're supposed to inherit, according to Paul in Philippians. But Jesus' resurrected body still has scars. Why? Well, maybe because our scars aren't antithetical to our calling. Maybe our scars aren't antithetical to our perfection. Maybe our scars aren't the opposite of the place that we can minister from. They're the very place where we can minister out of. Henry Nouwen has a wonderful book called The Wounded Healer. Uh, And in that book, he says this, As followers of Jesus, we can also allow our wounds to bring healing to others. And you've probably heard stories of many people who the places that they've been wounded, the places that they've been hurt, have been the places where they've found their calling and minister to the world. It's that man that I know who grew up on the street, whose dad introduced him to drugs when he was like eight years old, who's gotten clean, and who now spends his life ministering to those who are addicted and street affected. It's that couple that almost lose their marriage to an affair, who heal and become crisis counselors for other couples in the same situation. 
Right? Our, our wounds can be the place where we actually meet the needs of the world. You know, our calling might not just be where our great passion and the world's great need meet. It might be where our great pain and the world's great, great need meet as well. Paul says it this way of his own experience. You know, he had been beaten and shipwrecked. Um, he had been persecuted in Asia. And he writes to the Corinthians about this experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. The stuff I've gone through and the way that God has met me and healed me, these scars can become a place of healing for other people. Now, that does mean getting healing. Um, and I know that that's like a tricky subject for a lot of us in this room. You know, my own experience, growing up where I grew up, it was a tricky subject for me too. Um, I didn't have, like, I wouldn't score high on the adverse childhood experience chart. I haven't had a lot of crazy bad stuff happen in my life, but I've got my hurts and pains. And early on in my first couple years of ministry, they were starting to show up. And as God often does, he spoke to me through this little mouthpiece who's about five foot five and has red hair and freckles, my wife. Um, she came to me one day and she said, you need to get help. And I was like, super cool. Thank you for that. I will take that under advisement and left it at that. And she came up two days later and she said, your appointment's on Thursday. Thank you. Okay, I'll be going to that. And for two years, um, you know, every couple weeks or once a month, I met with a Christian counselor and we went through some of those places of pain for me. And it's been one of the most valuable things I have ever done in my entire life. I do not know where I would be if I had not done that. I have a hint and it doesn't look pretty. So whether it's culture, whether it's your generation, Whatever it is that tells you that, you know what, this stuff happened to all the kids on the street, so who cares, or whatever, that's wrong, okay? Jesus wants you to heal. Jesus wants you to live a full and abundant life. And for some of us, particularly if you've been neglected or abused or specifically traumatized, that means, like, picking up the phone and calling a counselor. Like, it's, the stakes are high, We've, we've got to do it. And hey, if you're in that situation and you don't have the funds to, we have bursaries for that as well at the church to kind of help you get started on that journey. Um, but this is, this is real stuff. We don't want to live out of our hidden wounds. We don't want to perpetuate the pain that we experienced. Um, yeah. Finally, our limitations. It seems like a weird way to end a series on the way that we've been like gifted and called and equipped, but I think it's appropriate and you'll notice in the story, if you're familiar with the story of David and this experience, just after Saul says, hey, bud, like you can go fight the giant, uh, this is what happens in 1 Samuel 17, verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. So the king puts his clothes on David. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. So, Saul says, you know what, David, I bet you you can do this, but if you're going to go to war, you need to look the part. Here is the king's armor, and the effects of that are disastrous. Doesn't look good. <laughs> yeah, for those of you familiar with Tales, right? He's tripping all over himself. 
And David says, I cannot go in these. I'm not used to them. Another way of saying that, I can't go in these. They're not mine. Now, one would think if you're about to fight one of the greatest warriors in the ancient world, one would need to put on the trappings of warfare. One would have to look like the other warriors of the day. But David lays that down and goes with what he knows, which to everyone else around him probably looks like a limitation. And one of the things that happens sometimes when we start to look to find our calling and our passion is we look at the way other people look. We look at what other people are doing and we think, gee, wouldn't it be great to be them? I'm going to try to be like that. We forget our limitations and the way that they can actually inform our calling. And this is particularly true in evangelicalism. Like, this is just something we do. We're kind of a rah-rah, hisboomba approach to the Christian faith, which is why you have to go to, like, a Catholic like Thomas Merton to find something like this, where Merton writes, I cannot discover God in myself and myself in him unless I have the courage to face myself exactly as I am with all my limitations, and to accept others as they are with all their limitations. Evasion is the answer of superstition. To evade who we really are and what we're really capable of and where our limitations are, that's superstition. That's fantasy. And boy, is there a lot of fantasy out there these days. You know, I've been blessed to go to a lot of, like, Christian leadership conferences over the years, and they've been great. They're they're awesome. But there's this one conference in particular that uh, they do this thing where before a speaker comes on the stage, they have a trailer for the speaker. And I think the person who edits those trailers is the guy who edited the trailers for like Pierce Bronson era James Bond movies. Because it's like, meet Joe Leader Guy, the Forbes top 10 business people under 21. He started his Fortune 500 company from his crib at the age of three. In his spare time, he flies rescue helicopter in the Himalayas. He's fluent in over 40 languages. He's lectured at Google and Apple and your grandmother's Lutheran church. Here's him using a laser beam Rolex to get himself out of a sticky situation. He's also cured cancer. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Leader Guy. And a lot, the problem with doing this, the problem with only elevating these voices and only elevating these people is we think if we don't look like that, we're not doing anything very important, are we? If we can't do it all, we can't do anything. If we can't be more than we currently are, how could God possibly use us? In the story of David and Goliath, Malcolm Gladwell, um, a journalist, a Jewish journalist, but a secular Jewish journalist, he's written a book on David and Goliath, and he says, you know, David walking onto that battlefield actually probably had the advantage over Goliath. Slingers in the ancient world were deadly. A stone in a sling had the stopping power of a forty-five pistol. And Goliath, as a giant, many people who have giantism, they have physical disadvantages, and one of them is usually poor eyesight. So stepping onto that battlefield in what looked like just like a shepherd's garb instead of a warrior's, he actually had the advantage over Goliath, possibly. His limitations, what would be perceived as limitations by everything else, were his advantage. And you say, okay, maybe that's David then, but like later on, David still looks a lot like Joe Leader guy, right? Like he's this like warrior, poet, king who's like super powerful. And you know these other people in the gospel too, like Jesus doing all those miracles or Paul being like wicked smart. Like I'm not like any of them. How can I matter? Well, where would Jesus have been if it wasn't for Joseph? His earthly adopted father. 
Joseph is in like three scenes in the Bible. His biggest contribution is that he's gentle and righteous. That when Mary comes to him and says, I'm pregnant and it's from God, he believes her and doesn't kick her to the curb. Where would we be without him? Or Paul. Paul, he falls off his high horse, has a vision of Jesus when he's on his way to persecute Christians. He's a, like chief among the Pharisees. And when he's struck blind, he wanders into Damascus. The Jews don't want him. The Christians don't want him because they're scared of him. And there's one man, a man named Ananias, who seems like his great contribution to the world is that he sits in his basement in his house and he prays nonstop. And God appears to Ananias and says, Paul's just come into town. I want you to go and heal him. And Ananias says, no way, Jose. And God says, Yahweh. And they, and you know... <laughs> Ananias does it. Ananias changed the history of Western civilization. He's, meant, he's named six times in the Bible. Six mentions of his name, and without him, we would not have the world the way it is now. It may look ordinary, but it doesn't mean that it's not extraordinary. It may feel like you're limited and you're not giving enough, and yet what you're doing could be changing the world. Maybe you're stuck at home parenting young kids right now. Maybe that's your limitation, right? You're just, like, stuck at home. John and Charles Wesley, who, like, changed the face of Western Christianity, started the Methodist movement, their mother had, I think, like, six kids or something like that. Legend has it. Her contribution is when things were really crazy, she would literally curl up in the corner by the cupboards, throw her apron over her head, and pray for 30 seconds. Where would the world be without her? Maybe you've got mental health issues or physical health issues, and they, they, they slow you down. You can't give as much as you feel like you need to give. Well, maybe God doesn't want you giving anymore. You know, I, I believe firmly that, like, if we have that experience of standing before the judgment seat, this is like totally apocryphal. This is not good theology. But like if we stand before the judgment seat and we get like a videotape of our lives, when God shows us the moment of like our greatest impact, we're going to be like, what? That was it? Like saying hi to that clerk, giving that kid a piece of gum or something, like that was, like, that was the moment that you used? Our limitations aren't antithetical to our calling. Our limitations are often actually the place that God wants to use us. He can take what we give, break it, and multiply it, as Dave said a few weeks ago. Uh, the worship team can come up now. So we've been in this series, this series called Shape. Um, really appreciated the feedback from a lot of you. It seems like this has been speaking to some of you. We've been exploring how God has uniquely equipped us to you know, join him in ministry. It's the way we've been gifted for God's good purposes. And some of you that I've talked to have been like super jazzed, super charged up, and you're like, I know where I belong now. I know what I'm going to do. Some of you are more afraid, more anxious, and more confused than you've ever been. And it's that second category that I just want to talk to for a brief moment. You know, again, our kind of church tradition sometimes can get a little bit anxious about calling right? Like, I, I've talked to teenagers. I used to be a youth pastor. And they would sit there and they'd be like, you know, like, what if, what if I answered that question wrong on the big five personality assessment? And it gave me, my, like, the wrong personality reading. And then I try and, like, live out of that and go into the wrong job and then marry the wrong person. And then, like, you know, 
I don't know, end up like just like face down in the gutter somewhere or something, right? Um, there's this really, be- well, first to that person, I would say, um, your unique calling, and Dave started with this, your unique calling is just the cherry on top. For Christians, there are layers of calling. There's our human vocation, right? We're all called to be fruitful and multiply and to rule over the earth, right? To make good culture. We're all called to make disciples, to love God, and to love other people. And then our unique calling is just the way that we are uniquely shaped to do those two other things. So most of the stuff we should be doing is pretty standard. You should know it. But that idea that, like, if I'm not doing it perfectly, I'm wasting my time. Well, there's just been this line in this song by Andy Squires, one of my favorite songwriters, where he writes, My love is only a whisper now, but nothing is wasted with you. As in, like, all I've got is like a whispered breath of praise, and yet I know, God, whatever I put in your hands, you waste none of it. You take it, you break it, you multiply it. So, like, maybe you started that degree and you never finished, and you think it's a failure. It isn't. In God's hands, it's something that can be used to grow you in love, to grow you in faithfulness. You know, maybe you invested like 10 years into a career and it went up in smoke overnight and you got laid off and you're starting all over again and you think, I've wasted my life. Like, how could this happen to me? No, nothing is wasted with him. Everywhere along that line, you've been learning to love. Every pain, every scrape can become a healed scar that can be used to heal others. You know, maybe you've been like running around to a bunch of different vocations and careers and you like feel like you haven't found it. Fine, you're taking the scenic route, okay? Look at the trees. Enjoy the flowers. But all of us, if we put our, our lives in God's hands, one, we're put into a community that can help us find out who we are and where we're called. You don't have to do this alone. That's the myth of like the millennial. You don't. Find other people. Ask them about it. But remember, God is real, right? The Holy Spirit is active. And if your life is in his hands... And you say, Lord, show me. Show me where you want me. Show me where you need me. You may find one day battle lines are being drawn and everybody else is shaking in their boots, but you walk up to the line and you say, you know what? I know what to do. I know how this particular giant falls. My life has been shaped for this moment. I've got the resume. Let me pray for you before we worship. Jesus, thank you for the way that you have been shaping our lives. I just pray right now against any fear or anxiety about the way that you've been calling us, Lord. I just pray that seeking the way that you would use us would become a delight in this place, Jesus. I pray for those today that have been reminded of of hurts that need healing, God. I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, enable people to move into action, whether it's phoning that friend or calling that therapist or whatever, Lord, that, that we would not leave this place without starting to move forward into the healing you have for us. And Lord, as we move out of this into just the rest of our lives, God, may you be giving us those opportunities where we can be your light in the world, Jesus. Even if it doesn't look incredible, just give us a great sense of participating with you in all we do, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.